with me to the book of Second Chronicles chapter 7. We're concluding a series that, that we started several weeks ago titled, If God's People. Over the last several weeks, it has been my joy and privilege to get to encourage us this morning in our pursuit of spiritual renewal, revival, and restoration. How many of you believe that God is in the business of changing people's lives? And God's desire is to change our lives, is to change us from within so that you and I conform to the image of His Son, Jesus. Now, our context over these last several weeks has been the promise that God made to King Solomon. King Solomon was the one who was charged with the responsibility of building the temple for the Lord that his father David, though he had a desire to build, was unable to build because of past mistakes and choices. And God said he would not be the one to build this temple, but it would be his son. And the scriptures tell us, specifically in chapter 6, that Solomon, on behalf of the people of Israel, he affirms not only his desire to lead the people of Israel the way God wanted him to lead the people of Israel, but more importantly, he petitioned for the people that should they stray from the will of God, the way of God, that when they turn to him in repentance, that God should show mercy. And the scripture offers numerous examples to you and I in the Bible of, of what happens when God deals with nations that often turn their backs on him. I want you to stand with me this, on something this morning. When a culture, when a culture chooses to reject God, God allows it to exercise its freedom. But we must understand that that freedom comes with serious consequences. When we consider everything that is going wrong in our culture, when we consider everything that's going wrong in our society, our posture as believers isn't simply to lament all of the things that are going wrong in our world. In other words, God has called you and I to have a burden. Everybody say burden. God has called us to have a burden for our culture. That we are willing to say, God, what is happening around me should not be because it is not in alignment with your purpose, your plan, your will. And so rather than sit on the sidelines and hope that somebody else will step up and be a catalyst for change, the change that I desire to see, God, work in me so that, Lord, I can become that tool, that vessel, that instrument that you would use to bring change in my culture. Everybody in here this morning... No matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, you are an instrument that God desires to use to bring change to our culture. It is we, God's covenant people, who are called to stand in the gap on behalf of our nation. And it is only as you and I learn the value of inviting God to renew us, to revive us, to restore righteousness in us, in us as the church, only then can we begin to see change in the culture that we desire but it first must start with us. Second Chronicles chapter two, chapter chapter seven, excuse me, verse twelve to fourteen, is God's response to Solomon's prayer, declared in chapter six. Read with me this morning, if you can. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night, and he said to him, "I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice." If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the, the locusts to devour the land. Or if I send a plague among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, God promised, I will hear from heaven. Not only did God say he, say he will hear from heaven, God says, I will forgive their sin. Not only does God say he will hear from heaven, he will forgive their sin, God then declares, I will heal their land. 
Now, in this, mess, in this scripture we just read, there are four principles that I want to challenge you with as we consider what it means to seek or to pursue spiritual renewal, restoration, and revival. The first principle is this. Revival happens when God's people approach him in a spirit of reverence or humility. Without humility, brothers and sisters, you and I cannot, you and I will not encounter the presence of God. Why? Because I truly believe that humility is the vehicle by which you and I not only acknowledge our weaknesses and our, and our limitations, but in doing so, we are inviting the grace and the mercy of God to do in us what we cannot do on our own. When we lack humility, here's what happens. We are inviting self-reliance. We are inviting pride to set in. And it is these things, self-reliance, pride, that become the roadblocks that keep you and I from experiencing deeper intimacy with God. And so when we learn to cultivate a humble heart, a heart of reverence in our approach to God, and we admit our complete dependence on Him, on His grace and on His mercy to avail much in our lives, it is then that I believe we can experience spiritual renewal. The second principle we learn is that revival happens when God's people invite His transforming work in their lives. I believe that one way of looking at God's transformative work is to compare it to two sides of a coin. On one side, you have God's expressed desire to change our lives, to help us to conform to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our standard. I am not the standard, nor are you the standard. We are all called to look to Jesus as the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one we seek to emulate. And on the one side of this coin called God's transformative work is his desire to shape us into the image of his son Christ, Jesus. But on the other side of that coin is yours and my willful surrender. Everybody say surrender. Surrender, surrender to his lordship. And the reality is, is that you can't have one without the other. God desires to change our lives, but God will not force us to change. God invites us to embrace change. He invites us to embrace transformation. But on the heels of his invitation must be a response on our part because we see the value of the work he seeks to do in our lives. And we desire God to change our lives, and so we embrace it fully, no matter how long or what that process involves. In the same way as you have two sides of a coin, these two qualities, God's desire to change us and our desire to surrender to him are necessary ingredients. They must work hand in hand if we are to experience the presence of God in such a way that our lives are transformed. Because God's desire isn't that we simply know him or experience his presence, but that when we leave, when, 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 every time we encounter him, we leave different. You will agree with me this morning that you and I are a work in progress. No matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, there is much that he still needs to do in your life and in my life to help us become more and more like him. And that process will not end until he calls us home. But there must, that be, there must be that constant desire for God to work in me. The third principle is that revival happens when God's people seek a deep and an enduring relationship with him. One of the greatest realizations I came to when I first gave my heart to Christ was recognizing that this holy, righteous, infinite God would, would look at me who am I that God would choose to want a relationship with me? That God would choose to make my heart his home? That God would choose to invite me into an encounter with him so that I could know him and I could become more and more like him? You and I must learn to recognize that God created every single one of us for a profound and a deeply intimate relationship with him. And if we will learn to begin to regard ourselves as not simply existing for ourselves, but that we were created to experience an enriching relationship, a satisfying relationship, a life-changing relationship with God, it is then, friends, that I believe we can experience genuine fulfillment 
and purpose. Today, I want to talk to you about revival happening when God's people reject what displeases God in order to pursue what delights God. In every instance in the scriptures where you read about a spiritual awakening that swept through the hearts of God's people, one thing was clear. Every time there was a spiritual awakening, the people recognized the importance of critically examining their lives so that whatever was within them that was exposed as displeasing to God was quickly repented of. God told Solomon that one of the conditions for the people of Israel to experience revival, renewal, restoration was for them to turn away from wicked ways. It was not enough for them to simply say they loved God as long as they were holding on to sin. God said you need to reject it, you need to resist it, you need to turn your back to it. The dictionary defines the word wicked as evil or morally bad in principle or in practice. And when you look in the context of scripture, what you discover this word is used to refer to is evil in its active form. In other words, that, that you, it, it, it is referring to a perverse mind that expresses itself in morally wrong appetites, desires, and actions. The Bible describes wickedness as originating from the heart that is corrupted by sin. The Bible describes wickedness as inspired by Satan who invites people to choose the things that displease God and to seek pleasure in those things. Throughout the Bible, we get this sense that wickedness, as God defines it, is something that should not have any place in anybody's life, let alone a person who claims to follow Jesus Christ. God has called us to turn away from wickedness. This is why God in his address to Solomon suggested to Solomon that Solomon, the only way that the people of Israel are to respond to wickedness is to turn from it. Turn away from it, reject it, renounce it. What does it mean to turn away from something? The dictionary defines the word turn away as an act of changing or reversing position or posture. So in other words, that you are moving in one direction, but you recognize that this direction that I'm moving in, this way that I'm living, this mindset that I'm embracing is not for me. It is not meant to be how I'm supposed to live, how I'm supposed to think, who I'm supposed to become, and we do an about face. And in making a decision to turn the other way, we are choosing to reject that which we believe does not belong in our lives. God's invitation, as it was to King Solomon, and I believe it's the same for us today, is this. That if you and I, brothers and sisters, want to experience his renewal, we want to experience revival, we want to experience restoration, we must do two things. Number one, we must identify through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, and this is why he's with us. To identify those actions and thoughts and attitudes that are out of step with God's will for your life and my life. God has not left it to you to determine what is good for you. God gives us his word and he allows the Holy Spirit to serve as that instructor, that guide, that teacher to help us to know what is in step with his will and what is not. But when the Holy Spirit shows you and I what is not in alignment with God's will, then you and I must choose to allow ourselves to be brought in alignment with God's purpose and his plan. Because you cannot claim you love him, but then you're living opposite of his will. And in the next several minutes, I want to talk to you this morning about how you and I, as the people of God, reject wickedness. There are three words that I want to leave with you this morning. And those words are love, loathe, live. Everybody say it with me. Love, loathe, live. Say it again. Love, loathe, live. Live. What do I mean by that? In other words, the Bible calls us to choose to, to, to choose to love truth, to choose to loathe evil, and to choose to live separate. 
Let's explore that first step, love and truth. Truth, the Bible teaches us, friends, is more than just an idea. It is more than just an ideal. Truth is not something that is subject to people's opinions, their preferences, or their whim. Truth is objective. Why? Because it proceeds from God. Truth is objective because it is defined by his character. Truth is objective because it is displayed in his actions. And so if rejecting wickedness comes because God's people choose to love truth, then such a love, the kind of love God calls you and I to embrace, if it is to make a tangible difference in our lives, must at its very core be rooted in our love for God. You cannot love truth outside of loving him. You cannot know truth outside of knowing him. You cannot live in love outside of loving and living for God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 15 verse 1 and 2 that the person who resides or person who dwells, as some translations put it in God's presence, is one who does three things. This person walks with integrity. This person practices righteousness. This person speaks truth in their hearts. The type of people that I believe God invites to experience a deep relationship with are those who understand the following. We understand the dishonesty, that deceit, slander, selfishness, friends, they are catalysts by which God withdraws his presence from people's lives. And the reason we believe this is because every one of these sins are the antithesis. They are the opposite of everything God stands for. And again, you can't say you live for him, you love him, when you are operating in a way that is contrary to who he represents or what he represents. One pastor put it this way. He said, truth is that which is consistent with the mind of God, with the will of God, with the character of God, the glory of God, and the nature of God. And so because truth is the self-expression of God, the reality is, is that it is he alone who defines truth and it is he alone who determines truth. Don't let anybody believe that you define your own truth. There is no such thing as your own truth. Truth is truth. And God establishes what it is. And we must conform to the standard he has established. So again, when we talk about rejecting wickedness, we must understand that loving truth means that we love God above anything or above anyone else. Loving truth means that we desire more and more of God in our lives. Loving truth means that we believe what God has promised and that we regard the word of God as sacred and as, as trustworthy such that we can apply it in our lives in any and every circumstance. In other words, what the Bible says to you and I is this, that loving truth means that you and I love God so much that we are willing to examine our actions on a daily basis and when the Holy Spirit reveals anything in us that is in misaligned from God's will that we confess it. We don't make excuses. We don't justify. We don't suggest that, God, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, but that we say, God, have mercy on me because I have sinned against you. And then we turn away from allegiance to sin because why? We have prioritized his rule in our lives. But not only does rejecting wickedness involve loving truth, it also means that we must loathe evil. You cannot love truth without it being expressed in a commitment to loathe evil. Loving God was always meant to produce discontent in our hearts toward anything that is opposed to his rule in our lives. We were never meant to be in Christ and yet embrace the very things that Christ died on the cross to set us free from. Paul says that, there is no, that it makes no sense for us to, to run headlong to the things that Christ gave his life to deliver us from. 
So, so the more we walk with the Lord, the more we are in relationship with the Lord, it produces a discontent. It produces a, a, a discomfort. We, we find ourselves uneasy in, in dealing with the things that are opposed to everything he stands for. If becoming more and more like Christ is your goal and my goal, and I pray that it is, that your desire more than anything else is to know him more and to allow a relationship with him to change your life. If your goal is to know Christ, then you must embrace the invitation to love God by loving what he loves and hating what he hates. This is what the Bible says in Psalm 97 verse 10. It says, let those who love the Lord hate evil. The one who guards the lives of his godly ones will rescue them from the power of wicked people. What is God saying here? What the word of God is saying to us is this, that when we embrace God and we choose to operate by his mindset and by his worldview, that he protects us from the influence of those who are opposed to his rule. There are many believers who find themselves unable to overcome wickedness and are unable to overcome the influence of wickedness, and it's simply because they have not drawn the line. We think we can walk with the world and also be in harmony with God. It is not possible. If we are to choose him, we must recognize that in choosing him, we are rejecting the world's way. The indictment against too many Christians is that we are all too eager to fit in with the world's way, while at the same time we are claiming that we love Jesus. Makes no sense. And God will not sugarcoat the standard he has set for us. He calls us to draw the line. But let me, let me state this, and I said this at the 9 o'clock service, and it's important that I say it again. Satan's strategy is to discredit the body of Christ by suggesting that what we hate is people. Here's the reality. If, if, if Christ hated people, I'm lost. You're lost. But the Bible makes it clear that it is not God's will that any perish. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your story is, what your history is, what you've, the decisions, your choices you've made that you know you shouldn't have made and you wish you didn't have to make them and you wish you could have a do-over and you could, things, things could be different in your life. The reality is, is it is the grace of God that changes our lives. Every one of us come to God with baggage. Every one of us come to God with, with, with stories of the things we've done that we shouldn't have done, a life we've lived we shouldn't have lived. But I'm grateful that it is the grace of God that receives us just as we are, but does not leave us the way we are. God's desire is to change our lives. Amen. But friends, God hates sin. Amen. And in the same way God hates sin, we are not called to hate the sinner. We are called to love the sinner, but we are called to hate the sin. God's desire is that you and I would willingly abandon anything that does not align with him as our Savior and as our Lord. I'm reminded of a story I came across of a mother who discovered that, you know, drinking sodas was having a bad effect on her and her family. And she was conflicted, but she knew she had to break this habit. And so she began to talk to her husband about what they would do to uh, begin to build new habits. But the primary concern that this mother had was that her three-year-old daughter loved soda. And she was not sure how to explain to this three-year-old that we are, we are quitting soda. And so as she was talking to the husband, the little girl walks up to the mom and says, Mommy, we don't like soda anymore? The mom looked at the daughter and said, Yes, that's right. And would you believe it? That was all it took. Because in this young lady's mind, we do not like this, so it does not belong among us. When you and I learn to see that we've been brought into relationship with Christ, that we are now in Christ, 
then there must be a natural understanding that anything that does not belong in Christ does not belong in me. We must quit justifying, excusing sin that God says we must reject. If we are to truly experience revival, renewal, rest, restoration, God says we must hate that which he hates. We must understand that living for God means rejecting anything that opposes his rule. Acknowledge those things that do not belong in our lives because we have chosen to align with Jesus. Again, the idea is not to project perfection to people around you or to suggest that you have a perfect uh, struggle-free, stress-free, challenge-free life. No, that's not what he's saying. Well, what he is saying is that when people see us, that they see, you know Jesus. You have a relationship with him. He's changing. Not, not, when I, I, don't, I don't use the word change because we're still a work in progress, remember? He is changing your life. That who you were a year ago is not who you are now. That who you are next year is not who you are today. That the longer you walk with him, the more and more you're becoming like him. So that it is obvious to those around you. Whether your stance for Christ makes them happy or it makes them uncomfortable, but that they see Christ is in you. Here's the last point. Not only are we to love truth, loathe evil, but it also means, rejecting wickedness, excuse me, means also that we must live separate when a person makes a decision to follow Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, they're not simply uh, uh, desiring membership in the church. They're not simply saying, well, I want to begin to pick up religious habits or become more religious. What they are doing is they are making a conscious decision, a conscious choice to put Christ first and foremost in their lives and to pattern their lives after him. And this choice to put him first involves a recognition of the fact that we have been separated from a life of sin, slavery to sin, bondage to sin, to our sinful appetites, our desires, our, our actions, to now because we are, we are joined to Christ, now we seek to live for Christ. And the reason is because rather than exist to, sim- to satisfy our sinful desires, we recognize the opportunity God gives us to focus on living to please Him. In other words, as believers, you and I must learn to see our lives as wrapped up in the pursuit of what honors God and what brings glory to Him. This is why I love what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. He suggests that the life of the follower of Christ is meant to no longer reflect the nature of one who is in bondage to sin, but now it's meant to reflect the character and the nature of God. In other words, that what is true of God is also true of me. That what the scriptures say about God's character, God's nature, is also reflected in my life and in your life. This is what Peter writes, as obedient children, he says, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be. He says, like the one who called you, be. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Why? Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God is saying to you and I, we must be like him. Again, when the world watches our lives with all of our flaws and our failings, in spite of all of our flaws and our failings, they see him. 
You see how our relationship with him has transformed our lives and has given us a, a new sense of purpose and calling and, and, and a drive and a motivation to, to, to fulfill the purpose that God has for our lives. It is crucial for us to understand that in the same way that God is pure, God is perfect, that God is complete, that God is separate from evil, so also you and I, again, if it is our desire to become like Christ, we must strive to walk in purity and in wholeness and not give allowance for sin in our lives. We must choose to separate ourselves from the ungodly ways of the world in order that you and I can live a life that is set apart to love God, to serve Him, and to worship Him. Here's another way of looking at it. That those who are called by God's name reject wickedness by pursuing godliness. It's not enough for us to simply say, I reject wickedness, but I demonstrate my rejection of wickedness by pursuing godliness. And how do we live separate lives in, order to, in, in pursuing godliness? By yielding to the Spirit of God who works in us to purify us, to refine us, and to set us apart for Christ. By allowing ourselves to be renewed. Paul, Paul says in Romans 12:1, to be renewed in, in our minds so that we, we become more and more like Christ. We are to walk in spirit-empowered obedience to the Word of God. So for Solomon, hearing the words from the Lord, saying to him, if my people who are come by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from wickedness, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, I will heal their land. God is saying, when you align with Him, that it means so much more than just some outward religious expression or experience. But that God is saying that for revival, for renewal, for restoration to break forth among us, it will depend on the extent to which we are willing to reject any form or expression of wickedness that exists in our lives. Why? Because we believe that pursuing holiness is our priority because God is holy and because we are called to be like Him. So I, I challenge you with this thought as I close this message. Do you recognize that genuine change is only possible when God's people begin to seek after a holy and righteous God with a desire to become more and more like Him. And will you join me in inviting God to come into your life and into your world and to radically transform your heart and mind so that everything about you conforms to everything that He is. Cultivate a heart that desires to please God. Be intentional about the things that you are allowing into your life. Do not allow anything into your life just because it looks attractive or it looks pleasing or pleasurable? Is it aligned with God's will for you? And if it is not, you must reject it and embrace a lifestyle of holiness as an ongoing journey in your walk with the Lord. Whether the Lord calls you home today or He calls you home months and years from now, the reality is the invitation is still the same for all of us. God says, reject wickedness so that you might live for me. And I challenge you this morning Allow the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. Listen, on our own, we tend to gloss over things we shouldn't gloss over. We tend to justify things we shouldn't justify. That's why I need the Holy Spirit. Because He won't sugarcoat it for me. He would tell it like it is. But what He does is He calls me to come to the Father and to find grace and mercy at His feet. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ today, you can turn to the Father and be confident that He will not only hear you, because he sees your heart and he knows that you, you truly desire to change. You, des you desire him more than anything else. God will respond to you. God will not turn you away. God will not play games with you. Again, remember, it is not his within any parish. God will meet you in a place and point of need. But what he's asking you to do is to desire him. And you can do that today. Call on his name. Admit you're a sinner. 
Acknowledge that what Christ did on the cross, when he gave his life, he did because there was no other way that you could be made right with God. And, and put your faith and confidence in what Christ did on the cross as being sufficient to satisfy God's righteous requirement to address sin in your life and then embrace the life that God gives you so that you can live a life that is pleasing to him. I want to invite every head bowed and every eyes closed this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we've had. Not just today, but God, every time we come together in your name, and you're working among us, you're moving among us, you're speaking to every one of us, Lord. Calling us, Lord, to righteousness, to holiness, to faithfulness, to devotion to you. God, we acknowledge this morning that, Lord, there are many things that are constantly fighting, clawing, clamoring for our attention, for our allegiance, for our devotion. And yet, Father, you tell us, Lord, to set aside these things and to fix our eyes on you. And God, I pray this morning that you will help every one of your people here today. Lord, to choose you, to reject wickedness, the evidence of wickedness that you by your Spirit revealed to us, Lord, to reject it and to embrace the grace and mercy you make available to us so we can walk in victory over sin. And God, for whomever, whomever may be here this morning who does not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, God, I believe that you are ministering to people's hearts today. And God, thank you for the ones who Lord, sense, Lord, that things have to be different. They can't continue, God, the way things are. God, to truly discover the purpose that you have for them, God, they need to surrender. And God, I'm grateful this morning that because they choose to surrender, God, you will meet them in their place and point of need. And God, you will save them. You will deliver them. And you will transform them. Thank you for salvation today, God. And God, thank you that, Lord, when we leave this place, God, when we step out into our maximum impact environment, the highways and byways that you've called us, Lord, to live and to traverse, God, thank you that, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, God, we'll be able to live for you, serve you, boldly proclaim the truth that is living and is powerful so that others, when they see us, they see you. And God, that they are drawn to you. So God, we say thank you. And we say thank you, Lord, Lord, not only for revelation, God, but we say thank you, Father, for helping us to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, would you join me in giving a hand clap for the Lord once again? Gratitude for his word.